Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 100, The Road to Conwy. Imagine for a minute that you were the prince of a land, leader of your people, and the first amongst equals. You are an example to your kin, a judge over all, and the person who has fought for the last 20 years to gain the respect and control over the land of your people. Now, imagine, in the midst of all of that, your enemies continue to mount. Your friends and your family betray you and your king. Your lord believes you to be the traitor, and then kidnaps your wife before you can even seal your marriage. What would you do? Especially if you believe, in your heart, deep down, you were destined to win. You were destined to have victory. You were not really been defeated in any battles worthy of the name. You made one of the most powerful kings of Europe bend to your will and recognize your right to rule, even as they opposed it vigorously. Would you see yourself, as Llewellyn Ap Griffith plainly did, as the rightfully aggrieved Prince of Wales? You've been insulted by king and court in your rights to make demands for recompense keeping in mind that you also broke your word in making the payments as part of the treaty. And this happened as much because your people are broke and poverty-stricken as it had anything to do with your rights and recompense. Meanwhile, lords to the south of you continue to try and steal back land from you, and slowly but surely you are failing to win victories against them. In other words, you're losing ground every minute of the day, and meanwhile you are left with less and less ability to take on those enemies. Would you feel yourself desperate enough to go to war with the king and his lackeys in a desperate attempt to beat them back once more without a weak king, without a divided kingdom, and finally without a powerful noble family to ally with? This is what awaited Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, in 1276. He was unwilling to give in to King Edward. He felt taken advantage of by the marcher lords and had been unable to even help his bride escape from the king. Meanwhile, abandoned and almost assassinated by David and his former allies, Llewellyn, for fact, was not in a good place, good mood, or willing to see reason from what we see coming. And in that fact, it will cost him quite a lot over the next year as he does battle against Edward to try and reclaim the edge that he once had against his father, Henry III. In the meantime, there was one chance, one opportunity, one possible point where the two men could have agreed and maybe have saved the prince from disaster and really legitimately one could argue, could have saved the principality from going and being sundered. And it all comes down to Edward's acknowledgement as liege lord. The paying of homage, which Llewellyn had basically avoided in 1273 when he failed to do it to the representatives of the government, when he once again failed to bother to show up to the coronation, and then again when the two men were supposed to meet in December of the previous year and, again, were not able to do that. In all of these things, questions arose about whether or not uh, 
Llewellyn or Edward for that matter, were really readily able to put aside their differences and actually settle this once and for all. And in the end, in the summer of 1275, Edward came to Chester, once again coming from his castles to uh, the marches in order to try and negotiate some sort of homage from his vassal, for lack of a better word. And once again, Llewellyn demurred from direct confrontation or discussion with Edward and rather put it off saying once again that he wasn't safe, couldn't travel into England, couldn't trust that people would look after him, feared for his life or for his safety, and once more seemed to have created a perception, at least on the case of Edward, that he couldn't be trusted, that Llewellyn believed that Edward was not a man of his word. And in the case of one chronicler, described him as raging when he finally left Chester a week later after not having met with his Prince of Wales. This problem and this issue between the two men had now gotten out of hand and was slowly spiraling out of control at this point. As part of the negotiations, and in one part to try and settle the matter before it spun completely out of control, the Pope was requested to get involved, and he sent envoys in to try and deal with the two men. Unfortunately for Llewellyn, he was not considered an equal to Edward. He was still considered a, a, a vassal, so thus couldn't be considered on the same level, and since the church had so much control over fundamental issues of politics at that stage, there, this conception of who was really the leader of whom was a difficult position which he'd been put in. Llewellyn had been trying in the past to try and argue that he was separate from them to moderate success at times, but at this stage, that was all being put aside and... As I said, the Pope and his envoys were effectively agreeing with Edward. Many scholars looking back at this period questioned Llewellyn's abilities and nuance in dealing with the king. It is conceivable that he could have made things right by simply working with Edward, by giving him the homage he required, by acting as a member of his vassals that would show allegiance to him. But the problem at the end of the day is that Llewellyn, I think at this point, had pretty much viewed all of Edward's allies as being against him. They were mostly marcher lords. They were mostly people who had had control while Edward was away and had in his particular perspective of Llewellyn done him wrong. And so as time moved along and as we moved into the latter half of 1275, he may just have not seen a way out of it. He may not have accepted that Edward was still willing to bargain and still willing to come to an agreement. He may have simply seen it as Edward setting him up for a fall and that he had to fight it out. Certainly, there is some justification to that, but I think there's also justification in saying that Llewellyn made critical errors 
in not coming clean over his financial straits, in not being able to trust the king at his word, and working with him to see if they could work it out. I think had they tried that, the next few years might have gone very, very differently. And we might be talking about Wales in a very, very different light. Certainly, there's no guarantee that the principality wouldn't have eventually been lost regardless. And there's no guarantee that Llewellyn would have kept his head had he been able to make this agreement in the middle of 1275 or even later in 1276. But the reality of it is, is that by making the decisions he made, by sticking to them doggedly, by setting himself up on this path, while it may have made perfect sense to him, it effectively destroyed his ability to control his own destiny. It destroyed his ability to represent himself as a nation representing itself to another nation. It destroyed his ability to finance and carry out warfare in such a way that he had been able to do in the past. And more importantly, it showed a great deal of lacking common sense when it came down to it. Fundamentally, we have to realize that people are human and they make mistakes. And certainly this is the case for Llewellyn. I mean, we can argue about what happens after this, but if you just look at it in isolation, it appears to me that his decisions probably made in anger, probably made in frustration over what was going on with Roger Mortimer and with the other marcher lords at this time set him up on a path where he was going to have to fight off Edward. And whether he doubted Edward's ability to fight, whether he doubted the English ability to stay unified, nobody can be very sure at this point, obviously. But nonetheless, it shows a lack of understanding of what was going on in England at the time. It certainly under appears to have underestimated Edward and his ability to unify his forces against Llewellyn. And maybe that in part down to the influence of Henry III and what he had done in the past and how Llewellyn had felt like he could play everybody off of everybody else. And maybe all of those things mattered, or maybe they didn't. Maybe he just saw himself in a position where he could not escape, and he had to do something, even if that something was the death knell for his principality. But to be fair to Llewellyn, he didn't do this by himself. He didn't make this decision alone. He called his lords to him, all those that had stayed loyal, and discussed their options. And at the time, according to the Chronicles, they generally agreed with him and felt that he was in the right. Now, that is wonderful unity in a place where unity wasn't always the best. But still, it does show that there was a lack of understanding of what was going on and a lot of anger at the English general sense of unwillingness to bend or unwillingness to take account for the things they were doing. In the meantime, Edward continued to make calls to Llewellyn to do homage to him. He did so, obviously, in the summer of 1275. In fact, on August 22nd was when they were supposed to have met in Chester. He did again in the fall, in October of 1275, in London. And again 
in Winchester in 1276, in January of 1276, and again to London in April of 1276. At this point, that's five times he's been told to do homage, and five times he failed to show up. Obviously, the best and probable only real chance for recompense between the two sides would have been in August of 1275 because that was when the king was by the border. They could have met by the borders. They could have met in Chester. But Llewellyn's concern over the conspiracies that had gone on in the past, his concern of the marcher lords seemingly made him demand that the king come to him, which the king was not prepared to do. He had decided he'd come far enough, and he'd had enough of waiting for Llewellyn to actually give him the homage that he felt he deserved as his liege lord. And so, as Llewellyn continued to make a stand on his principles, this intransience, this inability to do this one thing, put it into the hands of the English, because they could now go to the Pope and say, look, we tried, we kept trying, and he's just not listening. And for the Pope, it left him and his allies who wanted negotiations to work with nothing to work with, with nothing to work towards. And as time went on and we got farther and farther into 1276, there's only really one way we were going to go at this point. It was obvious that the only way Llewellyn was ever going to listen to Edward was through war, and conversely, the only way that Llewellyn could get his point across was to defeat Edward in some sort of battle, so that he could sort of win the day again, that he could once again appeal to the king from a point of strength, because at this point, he was definitely not in a point of strength. Meanwhile, as Llewellyn was trying to push his agenda to the Pope, also, Edward was doing something similar, and he was using the evidence of the marriage between Llewellyn and his new wife as part of the issue. Eleanor was effectively the enemy, according to Edward. Simon de Montfort had been the creator of confusion, the creator of discord in the kingdom. Thus, his daughter would be yet another one of those that was effectively the argument he would make and that she would be hello my name is peter zablocki and i'm a historian author and college professor i'm thrilled to invite you to check out evergreen network's history shorts podcast every tuesday and thursday join me on a journey through time exploring the little known and hidden gems of history in each bite-sized episode i'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of Uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Problematic to peace between Wales and England. So regardless of the fact that she was a woman and in the medieval period perceived to be different and not to be treated as harshly as her brother, she was nonetheless kept captive regardless of what anyone else thought. Edward was not going to let his enemies get together and be able to create long-term problems, at least under the certain circumstances that they were dealing with. So finally, after a year and a half of trying to get the acknowledgement of Llewellyn of his need to show homage and failing to do so, Edward in November of 1276 would declare that his former subject was now a traitor and had gone against the crown and so thus needed to be taken down and formally declared war on Wales. And that began so many more problems for Flewell. Problematically now for Llewellyn, not only was he facing the marcher lords, who were now starting to try and penetrate various border points with Wales, but also his brother David and Griffith Ap Gwenwynwyn were a part of this group of lords and were prominently perceived as carrying the flag of war to Llewellyn's territories. So, of course, this would then enrage him even more and cause even more desire on Llewellyn's point to finally deal with this problem. The archbishops themselves tried to deal with the issue of Llewellyn's intransience with their own methods, including trying to suggest to him that if he didn't fall in line, that he could be excommunicated justifiably, thus making everything that Llewellyn had done with the Pope invalid and create further strife because the church would no longer be able to support the prince, at least from the standpoint of the Roman Catholic Church. Whether the Welsh version of that church would have held to that is anybody's guess at this point. At this late point, Llewellyn himself must have realized that he was in deep trouble because he started to try and negotiate and in ways that probably weren't the wisest, but you can tell that this was a sign that things were not going the way he thought they were going to go. He actually offered to do homage to the king and in exchange also give him another 11,000 marks to make his total debt at 25,000 marks to the king. And this, of course, aligned with the idea that he would do that as long as it was in the march, particularly near Montgomery, where the original agreements were signed in the first place. Um, and the reason why it was 11,000 was because he offered 6,000 marks for the confirmation of the peace and then 5,000 for the homage of Resep Merduth and whatever was owed to the king already, which again brought it up to 25,000. It also was tied into the fact that he wanted his wife released and he effectively went 
into a very long and detailed explanation of what he would do for the king to try and ensure that things would work out. Uh, and even at this late point, possibly he could have pulled this out, but realistically at this point it was far too late. And Edward, with the ear of marcher lords and other Welsh lords, probably didn't care anymore and was quite ready to pursue this war which had already come. Uh, so even though Llewellyn had finally come to see sense to a degree, it was too late to probably push forward with it. By the beginning of 1277, the English lords began the process of dismantling the principality. They attacked in various locations, both south and west. And all the while, the king prepared his mightier armies to take over Gwyneth and to finally wrest control away from Llewellyn. Llewellyn, on his part, had spent most of the year centered on the areas close to the borders, trying to sort out a peace agreement, but at the same time recognizing that he had to prepare for what was coming. The reality was the army that Edward was able to field was so much larger than anything the Welsh had in their possession, and they just were better supplied, better armored, generally in better positions, and unfortunately for Llewellyn, had been developing experience both in fighting him and in Edward's case for having gone to the Holy Land and fighting in the Crusades. And so even though this was Edward's first battle in which he was under con full control of it, he was an experienced war leader and was ready to deal with Llewellyn, understanding what the Welsh were able to throw at him. And not helped, of course, by the fact that one of his advisors would have been the brother of Llewellyn. With only a couple of months into the battle, Humphrey de Bowen was able to push the Welsh out of the Breckens for the first time, and by March had taken control of most of the area. And similar problems were happening in Doithbarth, where as they were trying to keep the marcher lords out of Usk and Tui, they struggled to deal with the larger forces. By the summer of 1277, the English were able to move freely in the south. They had pushed up through the principality and had started to close in on that southern border of Gwyneth as effectively the prince's entire line fell before the English. In fact, many of the lords who had done homage to Llewellyn in his Welsh native group lords around the marches suddenly started to turn on him. All of the loyalty he had imbued because of his victories and because of the strength he had shown in the past suddenly came apart in the press of the English assault. And in a lot of ways, this would be repeated only a few years later. And in all cases, it created nothing but disunity and chaos, and it left Llewellyn with very little. And by April 8th, he'd been forced to even retreat from most of the central sectors of the march that he had controlled up till then. Because of all of this situation, he was in deep trouble and was even losing control over areas that were very close to Gwyneth. 
By May of 1277, the English had pushed to the borders of Gwyneth and in, from the east were able to cross with a fairly large army to do serious damage to Llewellyn's last stronghold. The Welsh lords, of course, had options in front of them that Llewellyn didn't. The king was willing to accept their allegiance and, in the process of that, be able to make agreements with them to keep them in their positions. He also kept their territories safer from assault in signing these agreements, and so in that way was able to maneuver the Welsh lords into what some would call a selfish decision, but from a military and political standpoint may have been the only decision they could have really made, and of course handed themselves into the English control. As the English forces moved into the areas south of Gwyneth, they ran into further difficulty and more stringent defense. Cerdigion was not going to go easily, and much of its armies would flee back into Gwyneth to try and help fight off the English. At this stage of the campaign, Edward had decided that Gwyneth could no longer exist as it once had. It was once again to be split in two. One portion belonging to the king would be the old territory that he had owned before Llewellyn had defeated him in 1257, and the other half would then be divided up, some of which by David, some of which by Owen, and even the king possibly claiming Anglesey. But in the process of all of this negotiation, it appears David was starting to bristle against the king and started to get frustrated with what was going on. Maybe David didn't see a split of Gwyneth as in his advantage or in his purview, but rather that Gwyneth would still remain a united spot. Perhaps it was the fact that he didn't like that Edward was including Owen now into the agreement, the elder brother who'd been kept in prison for so many years. And all of this seemed to create friction between the two parties. The king would no longer allow Wales to be a separate entity. He wanted it to be a part of his realm in actuality. And this division of Gwyneth into these particular parts were to set them up as literally just barons and lords and not as separate entities or as princes of Wales anymore, that they should be effectively under his guard and under his management. From here on out, that was the goal. And if Llewellyn could not survive the assault, specifically if he couldn't defeat the English or call them to at least treat, he was going to lose everything. However, at the same time, Edward was charging and creating credit notes with Italian banks to try and pay for this war, which was starting to eat into the English money and obviously causing issues of their own problem. With time running out and Edward having claimed Anglesey and stealing the harvest that the Welsh so desperately needed, Llewellyn knew he was going to have to take one last assault, or in the end, forfeit his principality and forfeit his chance at redemption. The royal forces coming to the Conwy at this point 
were at least 15,000 foot soldiers and a fairly large number of mounted knights and other who were coming to this final battlefield. Um, this would, of course, have created even more concern on the prince's part. Adding to the weight that Llewellyn was carrying was the defection of his own leadership within Gwyneth. His loyal followers who had followed him for so long, going back to his ancestors, were starting to find themselves realizing that they were at the end of their rope. And while there's not a lot of linkages to a lot of different people, there were certainly some signs that there were people who had had enough of fighting Edward. Llewellyn was out without men, without time, without money, and without food. The reality of it was is that Edward didn't have to take another step. He could just simply starve him out with a massive and horrendous siege of Gwyneth, effectively wringing Llewellyn in mountains and water and not much else. And effectively, the area of Snowdonia would become the place where most of them would die. And in that situation, with that kind of circumstance, you can understand why even his most loyal compatriots and allies may have been found deserting him at this point. The time had come for Llewellyn to give in, because there was no way that he could survive this. There was no way he could outlast what was happening, not with the current set of circumstances. Not unlike what had happened to his grandsire earlier in this century when he himself had been in similar positions and it took the advent of his wife, the daughter of John, Joan, to actually intercede on his behalf to put an end to the war. Edward, on his part, was running out of time as well. His own men were starting to desert him as the harvest started to come in. And as summer turned to fall, he was seeing his own forces starting to dwindle, which, while yes, he could probably continue to hold siege, would not allow him to create the assault he wanted in order to finally put an end to Llewellyn. So by the 10th of October, 1277, Edward realized he could not do anything other than starve out Llewellyn, and Llewellyn realized that he had no more ability to resist Edward outside of his range of mountains than Edward could bother him in full military might. So finally, in the autumn of 1277, the two men came to an agreement. Llewellyn, completely and utterly defeated, agreed to a massive stipend payment, lost possession of the principality, if not to the title of Prince of Wales, and found himself curtailed once again on the west half of the Conwy, with Gwyneth in a much more diminished state. Once again, just like in 1247, Wales was at the low end under native rulers. Its own rulers once again had divided themselves, most coming to the English side this time. Uh, 
And because of that, Llewellyn lost the ability to fight the war. For his luck, Edward himself had lost his financial and military capability to finally finish off the war, and what likely was concerns about David, who was now becoming as much a liability as a person of use for Edward, and with all of that created a sense of concern handing him any sort of power in the region. So with all of this in mind, this agreement in 1277 that set aside the disagreements of previous years, but yet placed in it the eventual end of this, saw both parties come to an agreement that neither party legitimately accepted or wanted. But nonetheless, they did agree to it, and once again, there was peace in Wales. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at welshhistorypod, or you can always visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye! This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.